so we have been um, exploring, and we're going to continue to explore this summer, um, the things about the Christian life that feel very ordinary to us, that, that feel standard stuff that we do at church or in the life of Christians that are actually extraordinary and full of power. And um, the last few weeks we've been looking at Scripture, and this will be our last um, one for, the, for this portion as we consider, we, you know, even if you're not part of the church or really familiar with all, this, um, with all this stuff going on, that you probably know that Christians think highly of the Bible. And you may think some of them don't use it well. Um, and I think that probably every, that's like one universally held belief, is that everybody thinks that other people are using the Bible badly. Um, so we have that in common. And hopefully that doesn't happen this morning. But we'll see what God does. Okay, so as we've been exploring the Bible these last couple of weeks, we've seen that um, the Bible is an encounter with God. When we come to Scripture, we're not just learning about, you know, what God wants us to do. We're not just learning about God in general. But actually, God is inviting us to encounter Him. He is alive. And so to come to His Word is to actually find space with the living God. He is the one that acts in our lives. He's the one that comes to us as we are infants and begins to work. And we've seen that in this encounter with God, that this is an encounter with God's love. When we come to the scripture, we've seen that this encounter is a lifelong meditation that unfurls over a whole life. And we've seen that this, the, the scripture is a story that um, brings our story into it and brings our story to life in God's story. And this morning, as we're in John chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen. It's in the bulletin, I think. Um, uh, I want, what I want us to look at together is that Scripture is an encounter with God that allows for us to escape into sanity. Not to escape into fantasy, but to escape into sanity. Um, I had the privilege on Friday of going with Sarah Jane and our youngest daughter, Rosie, to Tweetsie Railroad. And if you haven't been to Tweetsie Railroad, it is an experience, my friends. And um, I highly, highly recommend the Tweetsie Railroad up in between Boone and Blowing Rock. Um, it's a great time. And it was so hot. It was 81. And uh, so if you want to escape the heat, go up to Tweetsie Railroad, and it's really fun. But I noticed one pretty profound difference between Tweetsie Railroad as a place and Walt Disney World as a place, and which is that I saw a lot of grown men at Tweetsie Railroad, but none of those grown men were pretending that they were too cool for Tweetsie Railroad. But Disney World is full of grown men that are pretending that they're too cool for, for, uh, for Disney. You'll often, if you go to Disney, see dads wearing these shirts that say something like, most expensive day ever, you know, to show that they're in on the joke, right? That they really don't want to be there, but they've been drug along by other people that believe that magic and fantasy is real whereas they are firmly rooted on the ground. Those are the only people that I'm not interested in seeing at Disney World, by the way. Because when I see them, and I understand the impulse, um, what I really want to say is, like, I think that your church shouldn't say, like, most expensive day ever. It should say, I'm afraid of being childish. Okay? Um, I'm afraid of fun, of giving myself over to magic and fantasy. Because it's scary. Because what if, like, magic is real, after all? 
And then, it, you know, your life would have to change and you would have to stop being so sure of everything all the time. And what I want to invite them into is just like, let it sweep you up, bro. Like, just let it, just let it take you. Just give yourself to it. Like, you, I understand you spent a lot of money. You should have fun. Okay? And um, when, we, when the invitation to give ourselves to magic, to allow ourselves to be taken along, um, what if that's actually God's word? That we can actually come to God's word in a way that says, like, I'm going to participate in this and read it but I don't really want to be taken by it into the world. I, I want to have mastery over this and keep my distance because what if it's actually magical and real? And what I want to look at this morning is how this scripture provides an escape for us, not into fantasy, but into magical sanity. And I've been really looking forward to um, reading this passage with you all. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, there's two characters before we read, just so you know what's going on. One is Jesus. We've heard about him before. The other one, which is this is God in the flesh. The other one is a guy named Nicodemus. Um, let's call him Nico because it's just sweet to call him Nico, I feel like. He was a, because I feel like Nico's a sweet guy. Um, anyway, um, he was a Pharisee, which meant that he was very, very serious about his religion. He was an expert teacher on the Bible. Um, and uh, it, it was basically like he was the head of the Torah studies department of, of his university, and he was on what's called the Sanhedrin, which was basically like the Jewish religious supreme court in his day. He was very important, very powerful, a scholar, and he comes to Jesus at night and meets with Jesus at night one-on-one -on -one because he knew that he couldn't be seen with Jesus. He couldn't be seen taking Jesus seriously. And what Jesus does is he unconfuses Nico about God. So uh, starting in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is the good part. This is God's word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, I mean, he's taking Jesus seriously. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like, come on now. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's an Easter egg back to last week's episode when we talked about Moses. See, his story continues on. Jesus continues, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that's all that we get of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, um, thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that it's true and real, that that it's powerful because your spirit is in it and this is from you. And Lord, I want to meditate on this passage with these beloved sisters and brothers to encounter you with them. And so pray, Spirit, that you would be with us that you would unconfuse us about you, and that you would help us see what is real. I pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, It's really hard right now, you may have noticed, to know what is real. Uh, As I said, everyone thinks that that other people misinterpret the Bible. So even doing this act right now, reading this to a room full of people, most of us to some degree are like, I don't know if I could take super seriously what this person says. They could be wrong, because everyone has a perspective, everyone thinks that they're right, Um, news, everything, right? And what if there was a channel on TV, or a YouTube channel to follow, or a Twitter account that was actually true all the time? It's it's beyond our imagining to think that that could be the case. But if we could go somewhere that was true all the time, Wouldn't that be a profound relief to know everything else may be confusing, but I can go here and count on this? Scripture is an encounter with God who is alive. This God, the the I am, is the one who invented reality, who invented light, who invented the physical world, who invented time. And so scripture, if it is God's word, provides an escape into what is real, into reality. And Jesus is inviting Nico into sanity. Scripture can make us sane. Okay, so the first invitation that Jesus gives to Nicodemus about reality is that God is real. If you read through this passage, um, you know, like, it's funny, this is the last time I'm, I'm going to get to preach at Redeemer for a couple of months, and I'm like, man, this is good, because all I really care about saying is that God is real. So maybe we can just pray now. 
But if you read through this passage, what comes out again and again with how Jesus interacts with Nico is that he believes that God is real, that God is active, that God is doing things in the world. Jesus talks all throughout like God is active all the time. Now, you would think that Nico would be the last person that would need to be told that God is real. Because, after all, he's a scholar of the Bible. He's a religious leader. And he kind of gets it, and he kind of doesn't. Because he's willing to go to Jesus at all. It shows that he's curious. But Jesus tells him straight up. He says, look, you don't believe me when I tell you earthly things. I can't even start to tell you heavenly spiritual things. How do you think... I can tell you things about God if you won't even take me seriously on earthly things. And sometimes it's the most religious people that have the hardest time believing that God is real. Uh, I speak from experience as a religious leader. I don't struggle necessarily to believe that God is good, but that God is at all. Some of y'all are probably, probably like this. We read the Bible. Um, we go to church. We say no to the things that God says to say no to. We say yes to the things that God says to say yes to. And we do all that to avoid God. Because I think we think that if I take this seriously and read it and I do the things that I know that I'm supposed to do, if I do all that, then God will give me what I want. And I won't actually have to deal with him. He will just leave me alone otherwise and let me pursue my dreams. And Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to see like, no, no, no. God is much, 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 much more alive and real and active than all that. He even says, look, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. He's saying, you think you know what God is doing but you haven't even come out of the womb yet. And that's the second invitation to reality. The first is that God is real. But then Jesus so gently invites Nicodemus into seeing what's really a hard thing to own, which is that if you're going to have a life with God, it's a complete restart. It's not a a trajectory that we are naturally on. We have to be born again. You ever wake up from a dream and uh, can't tell where you are, like maybe you're traveling and you're staying in a hotel or you're camping or something like that and you wake up, I feel like me and Kevin have had this conversation multiple times where you wake up and you're like, I don't know where I am right now and it freaks you out a little bit. And then when you figure out where you are, it is such a profound relief because you're like, oh, whew, I forgot I'm staying in a Marriott in Baltimore. What Jesus is saying here can have the same effect of relief on us is that you have to be reborn spiritually to have life with God. God has to act upon you and bring you out of the spiritual womb, as it were. He says you need to be born of water, meaning a natural birth, and born of the Spirit. And here's here's the point. Look, we just saw Caroline. Caroline did not bring herself into this world. She is a result of the love of other people Birth happens to the baby. I'm sure Morgan can say that clearly. She probably wasn't a whole lot of help coming out. God made you and made everything. 
And what Jesus is helping Nico to see is that now none of us can see God because of the darkness of sin, that the eyes of our heart are actually darkened. We're cut off from the light of God and can't see things right naturally. We need God to work. But the good news is, as Jesus says, God so loves the world that he sent Jesus, the light of the world, into this world and into our hearts so that we can see where we are, just like turning on the light and recognizing where we are. Jesus comes, the light of the world, to rescue us from perishing, not to condemn us, but to give eternal life. And one day, that light is going to put away darkness forever. And I told, last week, I told you all some of my story of coming to faith. And I got to be honest, in, in that moment of hearing um, about the good news of Jesus for the first time, one of the most profound reliefs that I had was recognizing that sin was real. Because I couldn't understand why I would continue to do things that I didn't want to do. Or I would feel uh, yucky feelings about things that I thought were fine to do. It was such a relief to realize that I'm actually bent away from God in my inner being and walking in darkness, and I can't change that unless God does something. I felt like I could understand myself for the first time. Um, and I, I know there's a sense that, like, in the church, it's all about sin and, and judgment. No, it's about living in reality and actually being able to understand ourselves in a sane way that there is something broken and dark about us that God has come to save. It's not just escaping all bad vibes. It's being delivered from that within us that we know doesn't love. Um, when, I, when I talk to people, especially the younger people are, I'm, I'm just aware that there's a crushing pressure, um, especially to like grow up right now. And it, it, it sounds something like this. There are two things that are absolutely true. One is that you have a purpose to make the world a better place. So this is part of what it means like to, to be in the world is that you are put here, you exist to change the world in some way, to make a positive impact on the world. So that's one, and it just feels self-evident that that's true. The second is that the world is so hopelessly complex and big, and powerful, and beyond understanding that one person could never actually make a difference. That is what it feels like to grow up. I'm supposed to be the change agent, and I am powerless to change anything. And it's crushing. Everything is so complex and massive, I can't make any impact, but I'm supposed to. So what am I supposed to do now? And that is an understanding of reality that actually is quite true. But it leaves out some very key details. Because, I mean, you are called to move into this world to make an impact. And yes, the world is hopelessly massive and complex. Who can understand foreign policy or the internet? Now, I don't even know how the internet works. I have talked with Dr. Rebecca Alexander many times about chemistry, and she gets three words in, and I'm like, I don't, I'm lost already. But it misses some very key details. First, that God is real which means that you are not the ultimate change agent of reality. God is the ultimate change agent of reality. And second, it leaves out this. It's that people aren't just getting better every day. 
We need to be born spiritually. The world needs to be rescued by God and given new life. But it leaves out a third thing, too, and this is, this is the last thing that I think that, that, that Jesus is unconfusing Nico about and I think is, is this profound relief in seeing the world in a sane way. And that's that magic is real. And what I mean by that is that we live in a world that is not merely material. There, it's, it's not just the things that we can touch, taste, smell. But there is actually more, profoundly more than we can see with our physical experiences. There is a realm of magic. And when I say the word magic, you can call it spirituality, but they mean the same thing. But you live in it. You are a magical being. You have a soul that responds to God and responds to other people's souls. You live in a magical spiritual world. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but you feel it. And I know that you feel it. Because I've been with you when you're listening to music. I've been with you when you're talking about that friend that made such an impact on you. I've been with you when you're in loss. And you know that it's not just material. You are more than chemical reactions in your brain. You're not less than chemical reactions in your brain. But you are more. Love is real. Evil is real. You are not crazy for believing that those things are real. And some of the most sane people that I know are those of you who have experienced profound loss and have faced the darkness of evil and found God to be very present and active in a world of spiritual darkness. Um, there's a great Easter egg in this passage, like I said, from last week's episode about Moses. Ben already pointed it out. Thanks, Ben. Jesus says to Nico, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And as Ben said, the people of God were dying from these snake bites because they had been saved from Egypt, and yet they were complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt because there was cucumbers in Egypt, and there was no cucumbers in the wilderness. They said, you can keep all your salvation. We'll go back to slavery because the cucumbers were mwah. They were farmer's market-level cucumbers. And they were complaining, and so God sent serpents and bit them. They were dying from their own darkness. And God made a way from them, put this, Moses put this bronze serpent up on this pole, and he lifted it up high, and all anyone had to do was look at it. And they would be healed. They would have life. And what Jesus is trying to tell Nico is that I, the Lord Jesus, am going to be lifted up in this way high and lifted up, shining in the light of my glory, which did not look like anything but violent death, the ultimate sign of death, and that anyone who looks on him is transformed to life. And the reason why is because God loves this world and sent Jesus to be lifted up so that we can look on him and have life, simply to gaze on him, to receive from God, to, not to accomplish anything, but to allow God to accomplish something in us. That's why when Paul writes in Romans 10, he says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith doesn't come by doing interpretive work. Faith comes by simply hearing God speak. 
and being transformed. There's a show called The Chosen. I have no idea what time it is, so we'll just take one more minute because the clock stopped. Um, there's a show called The Chosen, which I would, I would recommend. It's about Jesus' relationship with his disciples. If you have a problem with me recommending that, we can talk about it afterward. Um, but there's this scene where Nicodemus visits Jesus. It's beautiful. You can watch it on YouTube, but skip the guy at the beginning because he'll ruin it. Um, I don't know that guy personally, but I was like, the vibe is just very different. Okay. But Jesus tells him all this stuff, and at the end, when Jesus stands up to leave, and, and Nicodemus, this scholar, this leader, this person that had power over Jesus, falls at his feet, and he kisses his hand. And he quotes, he's, Jesus is like, what are you doing? You don't have to do that. And he kisses his hand, and he says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. And he's full of tears, and and Jesus gently reaches down to his elbow and lifts him up and says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then he invites him into this embrace and Nico just weeps on him. That's the same encounter that God is calling us to in the word. To find refuge in Jesus, to gaze upon him. Now look, this might seem like a lot of pressure to put on some words on a page. Like, I read the Bible and it hadn't, that hadn't happened to me. But if you went to college, you got an acceptance letter in the mail one time and it changed your life. Simple printed words on the page change the trajectory of our life, whether it's a yes or a no. Um, Harry Potter, while we're on it. One of my favorite scenes from, from those books is that in the first book when all these letters start coming to Harry's house and he finds out that he's actually a wizard. Now, in that moment, nothing changed about Harry. He was the exact same person. Actually, nothing changed about the world, but Harry actually saw the world as it is. The entire world changed to him. Who he was and who he would be would change. And, and that's, that's what I mean about, about sanity. Harry was living a perfectly sane life. And if you had told him the day before that wizards and a school of witchcraft and wizardry was real, he would have thought you were crazy. But as it turns out, because of the simple words on the page and the power that they bring, if you continued to believe that, that magic wasn't real, you actually wouldn't be living in reality. Jesus is sending that letter in Scripture He's inviting you to let him bear you through darkness, to simply gaze upon him, to look at him. And uh, I had homework for you, but I'm not going to give it, um, because I won't be here to receive it anyway, because I'm going on vacation. But I wanted to read a section from a book, and I should have been shorter, because then I could have done this, but whatever. This is from a book called Everything Sad is Untrue. I've mentioned it before. And I want to read it to you because this story of a woman named Sima um, puts this all into relief for us, and then we'll pray. This is uh, about a, a, young, a young man whose mother was a doctor in Iran, and she um, became a Christian, and her life was suddenly in danger, and she lost everything good and beautiful when she got Jesus. And this is what he writes about his mom. He's talking about his, his six-year-old sister becoming a Christian and then what was going to be the, the result of that. He said, probably nothing happens if you're just a six-year-old. 
Except if you say, I'm a Christian now in your school, chances are the committee will hear about it and raid your house. Because if you're a Christian now, then so are your parents probably. And the committee does stuff way worse than killing you. When my sister came to Jesus, my mom knew all that. And here's the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. Not just the regular one who keeps it in their pocket, like us. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe that he was the one who died for you. And she believed. They, had to, they became refugees in Oklahoma and were very poor. When I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I told them about the house with the birds in the walls and the villages my grandfather owned, all the gold we had, my mom's medical practice, all the amazing things that she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian. All the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? So I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear, and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true, and it's more valuable than $7 million in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all your family and a home and the best cream puffs in Iran and maybe your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. This is the key point. That or Sema is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake. But she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was royal, and she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refugee in places that people hate refugees, with a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third-degree black belt. And she'll tell you, it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why Sema converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make Sema agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This whole story hinges on it. Sima, who was such a fierce Muslim that she marched for the revolution, who studied the Quran the way very few people do, read the Bible and knew in her heart that it was true. This is my favorite part. We accept it like a yo mama joke. If someone says, yo mama's so dumb she sold her car for gas money, you don't say, yeah, but why? Was she properly aware of the long-term consequences? You just accept the premise that yo mama is dumb and we move on from there. Maybe you lay down some facts about his mama. My mama is not dumb, by the way. So when you're evaluating whether she's sincere in her belief or a lunatic, 
you should know she's got more degrees, speaks more languages, and has seen more of the world than most people you know. And how do you know anything for certain anyway? Maybe don't be so certain all the time. It's a good book. You should read it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you uh, invite us into your life and into reality. Uh, Help us to come to your word not as those who unlock its mysteries or who make it come alive, but as those who simply sit and receive your word over us that transforms us. Help us even in this time when we come to the table and we sing to you to see you, Lord Jesus, high and lifted up. We would be transformed to be more like you and to share in your life. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.